Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Hello and welcome back to the Power Hour, the Heritage Foundation Center for Energy, Climate and Environments podcast. I'm your host, Jack Spencer, and I'm joined today by my colleague and Power Hour producer, John Pop. John, how are you today? Jack, I am so fired up right now. Fired up. Fired up. I like it. So um, how do you like being an on-air personality with us here at the Power Hour? I love it. I love it. It's, it's uh, Jack, I'll be honest with you. I think this is my favorite podcast of all the ones I do because great information, but a little levity and a little fun. Are you just saying that because I'm here? I bet you said that to all the podcast hosts. Uh, maybe. <laughs> no, it's it's great. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, I am fired up because I'm about three cups of coffee deep by now. So. <laughs> All right. Well, I like to think that I would fill your veins with more enthusiasm than caffeine. But, you know, you do you, John. You do you. <laughs> That's right. Now, you do, you've done a great job, but don't be too good. Look, I chased Rachel and Travis out of here. <laughs> and I'll do the same to you if you start to outshine me, as I mentioned I in know. the last one. So be careful. You're, I am very insecure. You're a power-hungry, crazy <laughs> yes. person. I'm kidding. You're doing great, and I'm so glad to have you part of the program. I just really think you're doing a, a great job. Now, we are almost done summer. I'm curious how your summer's going. Oh, man. It's been a crazy summer uh, because my daughter is getting married next September. And she's in her last year at uh, UVA, and so we've been. Oh, I, I got to go to one dress dress fitting, uh-huh. uh, and, and we're finding venues and caterers, and it's it's a lot of fun. We're very excited. How many so, kids do you have? Just one. Just one. One and done. Couldn't All have done right. better with any more. So we just you know left it like that. So, All right. Yeah, we're very proud of her and very excited. Her here's a fun fact for you, Jack. Her fiance, who's also at UVA was my intern last summer here at the really? Heritage Foundation. Interesting. Yes. Uh, where, where did he work? Uh, what what uh, what area? Yeah, did... Digital Productions. He was okay. my intern. He did audio oh, stuff. Oh, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. Yes, right. obviously. Yeah, but isn't that crazy? It is, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, it's funny you should mention that. And everyone should know that John and I did, didn't plan this conversation. Um, I have to say I'm a little depressed today. Why? And a little ecstatic. Okay. For a similar reason. Because I also have one daughter. Ah. That's my only child. And today is her first day of high school. Oh, wow. So, you know, it's on one hand, you hate to be cliche, but they really do grow up so quick. It's they insane. Do. They do. Um, and you, I couldn't be more proud of her going to high school. Um. But it's also kind of sad, you know. Yeah, it, you know, I, so I tell everyone like, enjoy the ride every minute of it you can because the car rides together or whatever you're doing, the talks because the tea parties. Um, <laughs> I have a never expire, it never expires tea party ticket from my uh, daughter, which I have up in my so anytime uh, I want. It's like uh, okay, it's time for a tea party. All right, very good. Yeah, and and also from her perspective, because as any of us can relate to, as we get older, time goes by quicker. And I left her a little note this morning before I left that uh, enjoy today. I'm proud of you and all that kind of stuff. But but try to embrace it because this is your last first day of high school you'll ever have. That's right. And wow. uh, so exciting anyway, times. Yeah. Anyway, so that's that. Um, enough about that. I want. I said I was a little bit depressed. I'm not depressed. I'm my my happiness for her. My happiness for your daughter getting married. Oh, I know is far better than yes. you know whatever. Stupid feelings I have about my daughter growing up. <laughs> so now on to our housekeeping. Um, I need to tell folks about our email address. It is thepowerhour at heritage.org. Email me, people. I'm lonely. I don't have my co-hosts here anymore, though John's doing great. Um, but, you know, help me out. Send me an email. Tell me what you think, what we need to cover. I need friends. So write it down, thepowerhour at heritage.org. Now, John... One of the things I appreciated that you did so well last time was telling people how to get to us. Would you do that again for me? Oh, it's so simple. Grab your computer, your laptop, or your phone, and just hit the search engine, 
for Heard at Heritage. That's our podcast feed, Power Hour. Heard at Heritage, Power Hour. It'll take you right to our page. And you can get it on all your podcast services, Apple, Spotify, whatever you use. And please subscribe to the podcast feed. And please uh, share it and give us a review. There you go. Now, John, I know I sound like a broken record. I'm always hyping up our guests. But they're always so good, I can't help myself. It reminds me. My wife picks on me because, like, when she makes a uh, a pizza, I'll be like, this is honestly the best pizza I ever had. Or whatever it is, I'm like, this is honestly the best thing that I'm experiencing right now. I've never experienced a, you know, a, uh, a chicken chow mein quite like this one. And I feel like maybe I bring that same thing. To, right. But I really legit think our guests are always the best. You've got to live in the moment, Jack. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, it's just amazing to me that we get these folks to come spend time with us here. And today is no different. We have a great guest. And I'm going to get into his introduction in just a moment. But today's podcast is going to be a little different. Not way different, a little different. Today, we're going to have a skosh of a debate. Not a real debate. We aren't talking Nixon Kennedy here. We definitely aren't talking Ollie Frazier or the kids who are listening, um, Jake Paul, Ortiz fight. Ooh, nice. Yeah. I know YouTube. But we are talking, I think, I think some differences of opinion. Not differences in objective, but differences in, in I guess, process, so to speak, maybe. Now, as you know, I spent a lot of time, probably too much time, lamenting bureaucrats and politicians. I just... As a general proposition, don't like them. I don't trust them. Not necessarily as people, but the roles that they play in society. Now, it's often as people. Yeah, that too. But not always as people. I've never, like Dan Simmons last week. I love Dan Simmons. I don't know if you wouldn't call him a bureaucrat per se, but you know, he's government. So I, I kind of group them all together. And he's a great dude, and, and, and I can say the same about our guest today. I think especially when it comes to energy policy, they— tend to do more harm than good. And if it were up to me, I would abolish nearly every federal energy program. That's not going to be surprising, probably, to anyone to hear those words come out of my mouth. Overnight. <laughs> yes, I would. And it's not because, I, sometimes I get accused of being ideological. It's not because of ideological bias. It's because I genuinely don't believe those programs work. That's just, I think the evidence shows that, but that's just sort of where I am on it. And I believe that if our objective is to ensure that Americans have access to abundant and affordable energy, then less government is more. Now, not to speak for our guest. I want to be clear not to do that. And he can certainly correct me. Um, he will certainly have ample time to do that. But I think just as a matter of framing this conversation, he would agree with me in that objective. Generally, we want abundant energy, believes in free markets and all that. However, he would argue that the government and the Department of Energy programs, or at least some of them, should have some role and properly managed and executed would do more good than harm, certainly in today's world where government is so big. Um, I'm sure he will expand more on that. So we're going to talk about that. Where are our differences and sort of how, is, how, how do we think about that? I don't think that our goal is necessarily to convince one another of anything, but rather just to have a discussion. And I can say without reservation, there's no one better to have this conversation with than our guest. And that's because that I know that this gentleman cares as much about energy in America as I do. And I believe that he doesn't have a soft spot in his heart for inefficient bureaucracy. He also has a long and distinguished career in the private sector where he's worked on everything from fuels to engineering to technology. But making him the perfect person for this here discussion on this here podcast on this day is his experience in very senior levels of government, specifically the Department of Energy, where he served as the Assistant Secretary for the Office of Fossil Energy. So he really has an important perspective to bring and one that I would do well to listen to. Thus, I am very happy and honored to introduce to you Steve Winberg. Steve, welcome to the Power Hour. Well, thank you, Jack. It's great to be here. And John? Good to uh, meet thank you. you, sir. So just to give folks a little bit of context, Steve and I are part of this larger group of folks working on a project. And this question came up, and we had just a friendly email exchange, but, an e but one that sort of you – know, the, the differences of opinion sort of were evident. 
And I sort of did my thing saying government stinks and get them out of the way. And Steve offered a well thought out but different opinion. And so out of that, we decided to talk offline. And then I suggested to Steve, hey, why don't you just come on the podcast and let's talk about it. So, so here we are. And we're going to talk about it. We'll see where we are. So now before we get to the good stuff, I like to chat a little bit so the audience can get to know you. So I was introduced to you in this process because you were part of the Trump administration. You ran the Office of Fossil Energy. Sort of how did you get to there? Just tell us a little bit about your your career, what you've done. Yeah, sure. Um, 39 years in the uh, energy industry, in the private sector. Uh, and for um, the majority of that time, uh, I was focused uh, on emerging technologies, coal, oil, natural gas, uh, both production and also uh, utilization and, and a little bit of uh, transport, but primarily production and utilization. Um, and um, I learned very early, in, in fact, it was uh, 1989, uh, I got involved in uh, the Clean Air Act amendments of 1990, uh, and my particular area was acid rain uh, because I was uh, working for a natural gas company. Did we ever det- determine if acid rain was real or not? Um, I think it was real. Was it as devastating as people said? No, probably not. But, yeah, th- there's some evidence to it. Uh, so at any rate, um, I got very deeply involved here in Washington, D.C. as the Clean Air Act amendments were being uh, debated in, in Congress. And what I learned is this, uh, this nexus between policy and technology. Mm-hmm. And sometimes technology drives policy. More and more and more policy is driving technology. That may not be a good thing. We could talk about that a little bit. But anyway, that's how I got involved. And so I kept a focus on policy uh, at the state and federal level, primarily federal, as I continued my career in, in emerging technology. And, um, yeah, that's, uh, I was asked to uh, consider joining um, the Trump administration uh, and uh, went through all the interview process. And I did serve as the assistant secretary for fossil energy. And then the last four months, uh, I was acting undersecretary. So I had uh, nuclear um, EERE, uh, Daniel Simmons Group, uh, cybersecurity, which was a fascinating area, of course, fossil energy, uh, and then a few other bits and pieces, and um, really learned a, a lot about things that I only had sort of uh, surface understanding of. So that's uh, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Why can't we change the name of the Office of Fossil Energy to the Office of Hydrocarbons? I hate the term fossil energy. I think it is... A horrible name that is a creation of the left to make us not like hydrocarbons. Well, I suppose we could put any name we want on it. <laughs> and, you know, do we change it back to fossil energy? It's now fossil energy and carbon management, F-E-C-M. I think we should call it the Office of Awesome Affordable Energy that makes us all prosperous. Yeah, or domestic energy <laughs> or you know, whatever. Yeah, there's a whole lot of names uh, the, uh, we could call it fossil utilization and carbon management, but... Uh, I just hate the word fossil because no yeah. one wants to burn fossil. Fossils means one of two things. Something um, that's old and outdated, if you want to use it in a pejorative way, or something that um, should be saved and protected. It's not something that you want to burn. Um so anyway, yeah, that's just a, it's a pet peeve of mine. I thought, hey, I have a former guy who ran this thing. I'm not asking any things about that. <laughs> well, it's always a possibility. But what I learned in government in the three years that I was uh, at the DOE is getting anything changed there right. is a, uh, a bureaucratic nightmare. Yeah. Uh, and um, but, you know, maybe the next person that goes in can give that some consideration we'll see yeah that would be but i i think whoever goes in next in 2025 has a lot bigger fish to fry right now that's true um that is true and we'll, we'll we will come back to those bigger fish to fry but i don't think the and and i'm i was it was the, it was a tongue in cheek question i know um but i don't think that we can underplay the 
impact that language and narrative has on how the public perceives energy policy. I think we see that across the board. And this whole fossil energy is just one little piece of that. But I think that it carries through. I mean, I think it has a lot of impact on nuclear. I think the whole CO2 thing is driven more by cultural or media-driven narrative than it is facts. But that's either here nor there for this conversation. So let's, let's get into the question at hand. In your view, what is, what is the role of energy policy? I think the role of energy policy should be in this order, dependable, affordable, and yes, clean, because nobody wants dirty energy. Right. But what we are seeing more and more uh, is this concern over, some people call it reliability, some people call it dependability, uh, but it amounts to the same thing. Knowing that when you turn on that light switch, that light's going to come on, or knowing that when you get home from work and you want to crank your air conditioner up, uh, you can do that, or you want to wash your clothes, uh, do laundry or wash your dishes, you can do that, uh, rather than being uh, managed by some uh, smart meter that's going to tell you when to do those things mm -hmm. or, or a utility that's going to tell you when to do those things that you want to do. And so reliability is, is enormous. And th this is the first time where we have seen something in the order of 75%, maybe even 80% of the U.S. transmission grid and warnings by FERC, Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, uh, and by other, and the ISOs themselves, the independent system operators uh, and the regional transmission operators, the RTOs, sticking up their hand and saying, we're not sure we can maintain reliability. Now, they put it in the context of extreme weather, but if we're getting to that point where winter or summer, if it gets a little bit too cold or a little bit too warm, and now we're at risk of not having electricity 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That's a very bad thing for our economic security, for our national security, uh, and it makes us extremely vulnerable from a whole lot of different directions. So whose fault is that? I think there's a lot of people that can share that blame. Everyone would point to EPA, and of course they have a war on coal right now, and, and larger fossil energy too, oil and natural gas. But you know, they've got six separate regulatory efforts um, EPA does uh, for coal, and some of those also uh, impact natural gas. The one that's right now of biggest concern is the, their CO2 uh, regulation, the proposed regulation. Uh, comments uh, were due yesterday. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I, it's going to go to litigation. Um, but what happens when EPA starts doing this barrage of regulation? It affects the capital markets. It affects boards' decisions to spend capital. Can you imagine somebody that wants to, a C-suite of an investor-owned utility or an investor-owned power producer says, I want to install carbon capture on this coal-fired boiler, on this natural gas power plant, the board is going to say, no, you got to wait until the rules are finalized. Well, if these rules go all the way to the Supremes, and it might very well, what are we talking? Two, three years. So that delays penetration of uh, carbon capture, which is something that I think... Well, we economics delays the penetration of carbon capture as well. It does. It does. Um, but there are people out there that are interested in doing it, but they're not going to do it absent knowledge or absent a final, uh, final rule. What EPA has done very effectively here is they've created an enormous stick against coal and, to a lesser degree, natural gas, so that those coal plants don't install CCUS because they have to do it by 2040, and they have to commit to it probably a decade before that to get it installed. So in effect, you put all these roadblocks in place and the coal plants will shut down. Add to that the so-called Inflation Reduction Act, and that's a hard word for me to say because it's not true. 
when you take a look at uh, the production tax credits for renewables, wind and solar, it is so juicy, so great, that again, any board in their right mind with capital will say, we're going to go spend money on renewables because we're going to get the highest return on investment. You get 85 under the uh, IRA, you get $85 a ton for CO2 if you inject it, uh, capture it, inject it underground. But when you compare that $85 to um, what you would get in the return on investment you'd get from renewables, you're going to put your capital in renewables all day long. And then later on top of that EPA's regulation, it's, it's, it has a huge chilling effect. I want to go back to this whole CCS issue. Um, this might be something we didn't dis- – I don't know if we disagree on it or not, but we'll have – I'll ask you about it. I think Let's what you find just, out. I think what you just presented is the wrong discussion to have and is part of the problem. Mm-hmm. Whenever we talk in terms of the regulation making it difficult for coal to use CCS – I think as long as coal is going down the CCS road, we're in a world of hurt, that we should be fighting the whole CO2 movement. We should be fighting that movement so that the coal industry can can use coal to produce electricity without regard to carbon capture and sequestration. I would argue, and I believe that um, holding out the prospect of CCS does more harm than good over time because it creates the the promise of coal being successful when in fact it never will be in that environment because it's always um, be, because it exists in this made up environment of needing to reduce CO two. In the abstract, I would agree with you. However, there's a thing called the endangerment finding, which I'm sure you're aware of that EPA yes. has done. And that endangerment finding would have to, that's regarding greenhouse gases, right. that would have to be rescinded. The probability of that rescinding, at least in my view, is slim to none. So if, if I'm right on that, and it is slim to none, then what will happen to the existing coal fleet, well, first of all, let me back up, there won't be any new coal built, Right. number one, and then the existing coal fleet will be forced to retire early, premature retirement, which then gets into the reliability issues that we talked about a few minutes ago or dependability issues that we talked about a few minutes ago. So if power plants, coal-fired power plants, could continue to operate without CCUS, they, yes, would be more efficient. Uh, We're actually, even if we put CCUS on every coal-fired power plant. We're not moving the needle on global CO2 emissions. There's literally nothing we can do to move the needle on global CO2 emissions. Did you know we can stop all CO2 production in the United States, release no more CO2, and it would would reduce temperatures by uh, 0.02 degrees Celsius in 100 years. That's what their models show. If the models are spot-on accurate. But that, that's, yeah, using, yeah. that's using their models using a high-end sensitivity. Right. I, I'm, you and I are in violent <laughs> agreement on this. And the, 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 just one, one quick thing, not to interrupt, mm-hmm. but I, I, and that, 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 that being the case, I hear what you're saying about the endangerment finding and how critical that is to the future. But we should be putting everything we have into fighting that damn thing, I would argue. I wouldn't disagree with you. But what if we don't win? Then what happens? And, and that's that's we my didn't. issue. If we don't win, then if, then we're on think... a on a uh, a glide path where coal will no longer be utilized, and it could be as early as twenty thirty five. I think we're on that glide path. Any... To be clear, I am a coal guy, a hundred percent. I was t- t- telling someone. Actually, a previous podcast said I've made a career being the nuclear guy, but nuclear is no fun anymore because everyone supports nuclear. Nuclear has bipartisan support. I now want to become the coal guy because everyone hates coal now, and coal is awesome. And so, like, it's a four-letter word, it, and most four-letter <laughs> words are, are well. I need to get into that. Um, the point is, I'm not anti-coal at all. I'm the opposite of that. 
But I would argue that if the endangerment finding stays in place, there's no amount of CCS. You're just wasting taxpayer dollars. Coal's not going to be successful. There's no that that this whole CCS charade from government is just an effort to shut the coal guys up for a little while until they can be till they all go away. Okay, but think about it in these terms: if we shut down coal and we shut it down early, and then right behind that will be natural gas because there's the methane component, CO2 oh, yeah. component, and all that, and now. We've got a, we already have a problem with reliability in this country. It's growing. We've seen it in, in, in Europe, in spades, particularly Germany, where they're now burning coal again because of this reliability issue. Yeah. And, and also cost in Germany because they've gone headlong into renewables. So um, if we change the policies, tax policies in particular, and I'll use the IRA as the example. The, the renewable industry has been telling, they've had subsidies now for about 30 years. And the reason those subsidies were put in place, tax credits and whatnot, were to bring, was to bring the cost down. Now the, the wind industry will tell you, and they brag about it, that they're the lowest cost source of generation. And if you include tax credits, they probably are because they're that lucrative. But what they're doing, of course, is causing this reliability issue because it's intermittent wind, it's intermittent solar. So what if we change the tax credit playing field and said, if you want a production tax credit or an investment tax credit, then you need to have dependability or reliability at, say, 60% instead of wind being at about 30% right now onshore wind. So you got to double it. You're going to have to put batteries in. Then you're putting taxpayer dollars through production tax credits towards getting the cost of those batteries down. But what you also do is you say if you're 80% carbon neutral and if you have a 60% capacity factor, then coal, natural gas, nuclear, geothermal could also get that tax credit. And what that will do is it will help shore up this very severe reliability problem that we have. It'll also now, drive up everyone's prices and increase the tax burden. Not so quick. If you now want to put in a wind farm or a solar farm and you have to have battery capacity, you're going to see a lot less of that being installed. So net-net, we may end up saving some money. Because the coal plants and the natural gas plants saving are saving money over the, the the status quo under current law. Yes. Yeah, that that's I with all due respect, obviously. I mean, that's just not attractive to me. Well, okay, but but it's it's the world we live in. Are I, you going to rescind the IRA? That should or, be the objective. Should be to rescind the objective. The objective should be to acknowledge the flaws of this approach and to have a, a energy policy that's driven by free enterprise. Absolutely agree. But I view my job, that's your job. Right. And I support you 100%. <laughs> Thank you. My job you is, can make checks payable to the Heritage Foundation. <laughs> okay. My job as I view it, well, I'm retired, so I don't have a job. But if I were not retired and I did have a job, it would be to look for ways to make sure that we have a reliable, affordable source of and clean source of electricity. And so I look in you know the cards that we have been dealt, how do we manage that? I understand that. And believe you me, despite what I say about politicians and bureaucrats and whatever, I am grateful for people like you who take on those positions to minimize the pain of bad policy. Because I know that you, not only do I know that the executive branch is not Congress, it shouldn't be. That's the way our democracy works. I get all that. Um, so I, I can't be clear enough that this isn't about the, con, the conservative people who take it upon themselves to man these positions, because thank God they do. Put that to the side. One of my fears is that in taking the approach that this is what we've been dealt, and so I want to put the money where I think it makes the most sense. 
one of my fears there is that it still puts those energy sources in a worse position than they otherwise would be over the long term because subsidies always leaves things worse off over the long term because, as you were pointing out, it distorts capital flows, it crowds out other things. And so how, how, do, we, how do we get around that? So one of the areas where I see where I've spent the most time looking and where I live on an island by myself pretty much is in nuclear space. Mm-hmm. Conser- uh, Republicans, not, uh, I'm making a, a probably inappropriate generalization, but let's just say for the sake of this conversation, Republicans tend to like nuclear energy and they tend to support public spending towards those things, towards nuclear energy. And that's all fine and good when the money's flowing but that money eventually goes away and the nuclear industry finds itself time and again not prepared to in, to compete in the marketplace rather than taking that energy and focus it on the things that government should be doing which i think there are things in the hydrocarbons and non-nuclear energy but also nuclear energy that they could be doing on basic research solving um materials issues um solving different technology issues that could be broadly applied like why don't we take those resources that we can't unappropriate and and focus them more on the things that government should be doing? So even if in a perfect world that amount of resources wouldn't be applied to that thing, some would. So let's do more of that kind of stuff rather than this market distorting garbage that I don't think ever works. Maybe it does, but I don't think it ever works. Okay, so <laughs> And I look forward to your examples of when it did. Oh, I'm not going to give you examples of when it did, but uh, there are a number of uh, directions I could take your, your, take your statement because it wasn't a question. It was a statement. Okay. Number yeah, one. I was given my perspective. Yeah, yeah. You know. Okay. So let's agree that we are not living in a free market when it comes to power, electricity, yes, right? Absolutely. Okay. No question about that. Uh, so to say, use the example of nuclear, you subsidize nuclear and then you tell it to go be successful in the market. It's not a free market. And the policies, state and federal, are tilted against nuclear in favor of renewables across the board. 30 years of subsidies for uh, renewable energy. Uh, So you're asking them any other source to fight against Pretty tremendous headwinds. It's a far inferior energy source, though. What is? Wind and solar. Well, of course. It's intermittent. Right. But that doesn't seem to matter. Our policies, both at many states and at the federal level, clearly favor renewables and have for decades. And so we, we find ourselves in a situation where the private sector has a very difficult time competing against those headwinds for, for, for anything but wind and solar. And geothermal gets a bit of a break, too, but you know, there, there are issues there with, with, with geothermal. and Certainly uh, that's part of the problem, yeah. for sure. I, th- I think it's a big part of the problem. There's, and so if you take away all those funds, then you also have to fix the policy and the regulatory yes. structure. Yes. And so th- those are two, in my view, really, really heavy lifts. And I'm not suggesting we shouldn't work on them. We should. I absolutely support doing that. But again, I come back to these are the cards we have. How do we make adjustments that to policy, to spending, federal spending, how do we make adjustments to those that will really serve the taxpayer to give them what they need? And I come back to it, dependable, affordable, clean energy. And I'm for those things, too. Right. I know you are. <laughs> uh, but, but I guess the difference between how you look at and maybe how I look at it is I look at it as incremental changes because I'm skeptical that we can make huge changes that will stick. The political winds in this country shift pretty wildly. Yeah. It's and, a huge problem. When, whenever yeah. I whenever I said uh, the the when, when I made the comment about the headwinds that I said that's part of the problem, I was one of the I think a big problem is the polit- is the the political swings that that occur. Right. Yeah. I, we talked about it before the podcast began. The Trump administration 
uh, with a Republican House and a Republican Senate, Wanda sent a budget to Congress that was severely cut. Um, it didn't happen. In fact, I told you, and I think this is accurate, some people rolled their eyes, some people ridiculed, and some people just ignored it. Yeah. Mostly they ignored it, and Congress did what they wanted to do. So even with a Republican Congress and a very, very strong president in the White House, I still think it's a heavy lift to change the budget process and where Congress appropriates money, number one, and number two, radical changes in policy. Now, over time, yes. Radical changes in the short term, I'm skeptical. But I do think if we do them in the long term, if we make a deliberate effort to reduce the deficit, I think the market initially uh, will blink hard. But over time, they'll see the value of it. Wall Street will see the value of it. And investments will start to happen. And perhaps just as importantly, I think the rest of the world will see the opportunity for investments in the United States. But I think it has to happen incrementally. I hope it can. I'm not as skeptical on that, so I'm more hopeful on that. But I think it's incremental. So I wouldn't characterize the policies that I promote or that I think are necessary as radical. My um, my preferred policy might be radical, which is getting government out of energy policy altogether. But that's not where I am really when it comes to these sort of, you know, a, a real policy discussion. Um, but put that to the side. One of the things that, that I fear with, um, or no, let me ask you, do you not fear that by taking the approach you just described, you relieve some of the pressure to move policy? So, um, in other words, whenever you have these government programs that are meant to keep certain industries afloat in the face of bad policy, by doing that, you remove the pressure from those industries to fight hard to get the policies changed. Mm, I don't know. I, I guess I, I perhaps, but I also think, uh, let me use the coal industry as the example. Uh, the coal industry, uh, if things don't change, I believe it's on its way out. Mm -hmm. Um, the the uh, the people that are focused on climate change, the people that think coal is a four-letter word, uh, have gotten to Wall Street. They've gotten to insurance companies. They've done an incredible job in demonizing coal. And so the coal industry, if you look at that industry, um, is somewhat bifurcated, maybe even fractured. Some of them see a short life of 10 or 15 years. Others see a longer life or want to have a longer life. And to a large degree, it's based on the amount of reserves they have on their balance sheet. Mm -hmm. And that dictates their view of, of the future. But they don't have the financial wherewithal to have a significant impact on federal policy. And certainly they are outgunned uh, by their the opposition. And the opposition is widespread. Mm -hmm. So then I think it does become the role of the federal government to think about this natural resource that we have, the largest reserves in the world of coal, some of the highest quality coal in the world, and do we let it sit in the ground? Do we quit using it? Um, or is it important enough for federal policy and federal funding to develop technology that will allow it to stay in the energy mix because it is the lowest cost. And if it wasn't the lowest cost, you wouldn't have China that has in 2022 permitted 106 gigawatts of new coal-fired generation. By 2030, based on announced retirements in the United States, we will be about 90 gigawatts. And so they are, for, in 2022, they permitted more new coal 
than we're going to have in the fleet by 2030. They're doing that for a reason. India is doing it for a reason. Africa, if they ever get their political act together, will do it for a reason. And the reason is it's the lowest cost, most reliable fuel for electricity production. And it's clean. It can be clean. It, well, certainly Western coal is clean. It is. It is clean. It is, uh, but with technology, we can make it zero emission. In fact, I'll go a step further. But we don't. We can make it net negative. If you add coal with biomass and carbon capture, it's net negative. It's better than solar. It's better than wind. Yes, but I keep coming back to we shouldn't be fighting that fight. The 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 the, car, the carbon piece of it because I think that's I think it's a fool's game. I think that if that's if that's what coal is dependent on, it's it's just going to die. I think um, I don't have confidence in that playing out in a positive way. I have confidence. I think I think that it is our chances of be, are better of overturning the endangerment finding than coal ever being successful in a carbon restricted world. I don't like that. That's not my prefer. That's not my preference. And so. Um, yeah, that, that's why I, I want to focus our – I know everyone has different roles to play. I want to focus my power on that endangerment finding because I think that is better in the long term. Um, but, I, I, but I hear what you're saying. I hear, I hear what you're saying. Can I bring up another point? I want to ask you what you think about this. Well, no, you were going to say something. Yeah. And, and I want you to focus your energy on that. What I want to focus my energy on is the technology development because we have coal communities and coal-fired power plant communities that are going to be in deep financial trouble and tax base from the coal mine and from the coal-fired power plant that go into schools and all of those things that, that help the communities. They're going to go down. And I think you're right. Coal in the United States may go away, but it doesn't go away in the rest of the world. Well, we sell more coal. The, the coal, the world has used more coal, uses more coal every year. It does. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Peak, peaked uh, in, in uh, 2022. Mm-hmm. Um, we can't export our coal. We, we do export coal, but increasing exports of coal is difficult because yeah, getting, to, getting permit the, for a, a terminal is very terminal. difficult. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I, look, I'm from a devastated coal community. I don't know firsthand what a burgeoning coal community is because I never lived there. I lived in the aftermath of a burgeoning coal community. I'm from the Apple. I'm from uh, Western Maryland, and uh, lived in West Virginia for some uh, during during my early teen years. So, like, I know firsthand what coal does and what the elimination of coal is. Um, not that that gives me any special insight or anything. Other than like, I get that. Um, but uh, one one of the things that I wanted to to ask you about regarding coal, what do you think about these movements that you often hear from the left, but a little bit from the right, putting new power sources in old coal communities? So you get rid of the coal-fired boilers and you put in a small modular reactor you, or, or you fill the mountains with windmills or whatever. Do you think that there's any there there and I ask you and now I'll make a statement um, I think that that's another effort to try to convince coal communities or coal interests to go along with the program we'll keep you going a little bit longer but then there's no there's no there there I, I generally there's no there there uh, there clearly will be an opportunity or two or three or four uh, that where, where you could put a, a small modular reactor in an existing uh, power plant and use the transmission lines and the transformers and the bus bars and all that sort of thing. Um, but it isn't going to be widespread. Uh, wind and solar um, at those facilities is problematic because you need to have high-quality wind, and that's usually on, on a ridge line, uh, not where these coal plants are built, and mm-hmm. the same with solar. Uh, to make those facilities, well, they're economical now because of the IRA, irrespective, pretty much irrespective of where you put them. Mm-hmm. But if you want to get a really high return on investment, 
you need to be putting wind in high-quality wind areas and sun in high-quality sun mm-hmm. areas so you can maximize your production tax credit. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that the opportunities are limited, and therefore when people, politicians, talk about bringing all these wonderful jobs into these coal communities, uh, I spent 30 years in Pittsburgh, and all up and down the Monongahela River, we call it the Mon Valley, the old steel mm-hmm. areas, uh, Every little town had a uh, business development manager, and every one of those business development managers uh, would talk about the company that was going to come in, reuse a brownfield site. They were going to start off with 300 jobs and go to 1,000 mm-hmm. jobs, and it was going to be 1,000 construction jobs, and it rarely, rarely happened. Mm-hmm. And another sad reality in a lot of these communities, uh, not so much out west but in the east, Got a, you've got an opioid ac- epidemic mm-hmm. because these communities have been in decline. Mm-hmm. So would a company come in and, and want to build a factory there? Probably not. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm going to bring up something that might be a controversial take. Um, I'm hesitant to do it, but whatever, I will anyway. In talking... Being involved in this policy game for, I guess, a while now, um, this is going back to coal. One of the things I believe I observed, and I don't know if it's true or not, but this is my perception, is that the coal industry and coal supporters did a horrible job of defending the technology in itself. That um, when when this whole CO2 thing started happening, really started gaining momentum, say, you know, I'd say as far back as 2005, because that's when you started. That was the first big piece of legislation where you had government beginning to really subsidize CCS-type things. Um, Not standing up and saying, no, we supply... 50% 50% of the this country's energy, which they did back then, and we do it cleanly, and we're not taking your we're, – we're, we're fighting this narrative right now. We're going to fight strong. It was – it always felt to me like it, you had you had them signing up to, like, different coalitions and clean energy. And, and even now when I talk, not, notwithstanding any recent podcasts I've done, um, I hear people in the coal community referencing themselves as – yeah, until we get to the transition, we, you know, we, you're going to need us for a little while. Instead of saying, no, we're 300 years worth of energy, and we're good, and we're affordable, and we bring prosperity to this country. And now it's gotten out in front of them so far that I don't know if the, if the fight is lost. I don't, what do you think of that, that take? Yeah, I, I think you're right, and, and I think it's been an evolution. Um, Back in the acid rain days, you know, NOx and mercury and so forth, um, the criteria pollutants plus the mercury, the coal producers' customers carried the burden, the policy burden, the technology burden, and they installed the technologies, worked with the Department of Energy on developing scrubber technologies and, and all the technologies that would deal with criteria pollutants. And the coal industry just sat back because their customers took care of it for them. Mm -hmm. That didn't happen with CO2. And what has happened is a lot of the power producers that have coal, I'll say, have thrown in the towel. Mm -hmm. Too much shareholder pressure, too much public utility commission pressure, too much um, other stakeholder pressure, and they've thrown in the towel. Now, they don't have a good path forward on what they're going to do if coal goes away because then you it's probably safe to assume that gas will will follow, right, mm-hmm. um, because the Sierra Club's not going to let up here. Yeah, without question, it's going to follow. Right. Okay. So <laughs> they don't have a, an answer yet, but they've thrown in the towel on coal, and um, the coal industry uh, really hasn't stood up and said, this is what we're for. You can always be against something, yeah. but that's a whole lot less um, compelling than being for something. And then I, I think the coal industry um, 
probably has stumbled. Now, there are some coal companies out there that are for something. Uh, there's a coal to products where you're not using the heating value of the coal. You're using the carbon value to make materials and building materials and carbon fiber and all those things. And so they're working on that, but it's a pretty small industry. And as I mentioned before, they don't have the financial wherewithal to be a very loud voice in uh, in Washington here. Mm-hmm. Um, they just don't. Uh, so it's a challenge. But again, I, what I come back to is we can develop the technology. We can commercialize the technology to solve this problem if you think there's a problem. And the yeah. problem is that the world believes we've got a, a climate issue here. And I don't think that's going to change, by the way. But, I, I, but, I disagree with that. Okay, that's fair enough. But if we develop these technologies here in the United States, then we can start exporting those technologies if I'm right. If I'm wrong and the whole climate issue goes away, I don't think it's money wasted. Well, that point we probably disagree on more than any of them. <laughs> I, I think I think it's okay. All. <laughs> that's not a lot of money wasted compared uh, well, to other things we are we're yeah, spending maybe, money on. Maybe that's the case. But I, again, I come back to you can't measure the impact of bad policy solely by the amount of dollars spent on it, because it distorts so much. It has so broad the ripple effects are so broad. Um, but I hear you. I, you know, I think I think. You know, when it comes down to it, the question is, does one think that CO2 will continue to be a central driver of energy policy or not? And if so, I will pretend for a moment I agree that it is, although I'm not, I will go to my grave fighting that fight. And I may well do that. Um, so then, then the question is, what's the right policy? And I guess at that point, I would argue the government still shouldn't be involved in funding this stuff, but rather should be should set the broad regulation and say, you go figure out how to do it. Um, but again, that is not very realistic either. But that then, then you would see what the best way to reduce CO2 actually is. Yeah. And if we could disassemble government and reassemble it, I'd well, absolutely agree with I you. I agree with half of that, the disassemble part. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Right. I'm kidding. I know I've become a caricature of myself, but yeah. I can't help myself. <laughs> but, you know, again, I come at it, these are the cards we're dealt, and, yeah. and we have to manage around those uh, those policy imperatives that are out there. Um, and... Uh, you know, maybe there will be some bigger crisis that will emerge on a global basis than climate change, and that will be pushed to the background. But boy, I shudder to think what that might. Oh, be. I can tell you what it is: the bigger crisis than first of all, the bigger cli- crisis than climate change is anything. <laughs> but. Putting that aside, the bigger crisis than climate change is what the policy impact of climate change policy is going to be. The bigger crisis than climate change is the impact of climate change policy on our economy. And I think you're starting to see that. You, you're starting to see how climate change policy is not economically sustainable. One recent example, just the, in the last you know few weeks, um, is the electric bus company Proterra that just went bankrupt. I mean, is are there any companies that the president has held up higher that we've been told this is the future, that all of this stuff, and as the Proterra CEO said, the marketplace is fickle. It's not fickle. The marketplace has been pretty clear. They don't want your stuff. And, and so um, you just can't keep ignoring that stuff. And you can, I would argue, you can't ignore it at a low level because our economy is so robust and dynamic that you ha- that it can withstand a certain amount of stupidity. But as that stupidity grows, your margin for error is far less. And we're getting closer and closer to that margin of error being, you know, being so small 
that people are going to really start feeling the impact of it. And that, that, that could be the driver that forces us to have a real conversation, an open discussion about climate change, science, what's the real impact of policy, what's the real impact of CO2. And that's what we're missing. The, the, the truth is I don't, I'm not, I'm not a, I think that we should understand CO2 and the impact on the climate. I just feel like it's all been so politicized and used for political and, and you know, for political advantage that it, the, the, the discussion has become meaningless. I think it has. It's been politicized, no, no question about it. Um, it's become a weapon. And so I, that's why I keep coming back to if we really want to address climate change, whether you believe it or not, if we really want to address it, let's do it with eyes wide open that this, it needs to be done on a global basis. And that means it needs, we need to develop all the technologies for all the fuels that the world is going to continue to use as they pull people out of energy poverty. And so if we're focused um, only on some technologies, which we are right now here in the United States, we don't move the needle on CO2 concentrations in the atmosphere, even if we shut down all the coal plants and shut down all the natural gas plants. We don't move the needle. So let's develop the technologies, and then the world will decide, the human population will decide how serious climate change is to them when they stack it up against all the other things. Yeah. But let's not just focus on a couple of technologies and let the rest go to rot. Yeah. I'm going to let that be the last word. Thank you so much, Steve. I hope that, I hope that you found this at least not painful. No, it wasn't painful. I enjoyed it a lot. It Very was, good. That's good. what I like to hear. Now, do you do social media or do you have anything where do you want to point people to writing a book or, or anything like that? Uh, no, I, I don't. Um, I've got a 501c6 that's set up and uh, I've got some, uh, some members that uh, keep me going marginally, but I mainly do this because I think it's important. And I think it's important for my kids and my one granddaughter and hopefully uh, more and, and, and great grandkids. Uh, and, you know, maybe I'm being altruistic. I don't know. Uh, but uh, that's why I do it. Very good. Well, we're glad that you took some time to, to, uh, to have this discussion with us here today. I really, really appreciate it. Um, so I, I know something you can you can, you can pitch for is this podcast. If you want to if you want to hear more from Steve, just listen to this podcast again. Four, two, two, three, maybe nine times. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Each time, bring a new friend and say, "You got to listen to this thing, guys." So anyway, Steve, thank you, thank you to everyone who took some time out of your day to listen to the Power Hour. And please, if you enjoyed the podcast, tell your friends and family, colleagues to check us out. Send us an email, John. Thank you. I've got it. Can I get a final word? Oh, please. Okay. Please, please. Um, I want to say, Jack, welcome. I'm, I'm glad to hear you're a coal guy now. I've been a coal guy forever, but it wasn't by choice. It was just every Christmas right in the stocking there it was. <laughs> there you, but I, well, I, I actually got coal um, because my family, they, they thought it would be funny. And I was like, this is the best Christmas present I've gotten in a while. One of the I know we're trying to close down, but now I got to tell you a quick story. One of the one of the things that I, when you go throughout your career, every once in a while you like pick up a, a knickknack or something that's sort of memorable of of that thing. I've had the opportunity to do a lot of traveling around and spend time with a lot of energy industry people. On uh, the day Fukushima happened, mm. and I remember I'm the nuclear guy, nuclear guy here. Um, I was thousands of feet underground in a coal mine in oh. Pennsylvania. And um, and I came up out and I had a thousand emails. The world's coming to an end. I have another story about that I'll say for another day. I learned a big lesson that with that, that occurrence. Something about nuclear energy that has served me well since then will serve me well in the future. But I'm gonna say that for a future podcast. So I'm gonna say about it now. One of the things I brought up out of that mine they gave me, I asked for and they gave me, I didn't steal it, is one of the teeth on oh. the the mining yeah. thing that spins around, That's awesome. and it's really he- it, it feels almost like lead. It's real yeah. heavy, and um, the people who are down there in, the, in those 
coal mines running these machines. It's a, it's amazing. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I, I don't know why. I guess we were talking coal, and that was one more coal story. Anyway, but don't forget to look at the Herd at Heritage on the Googles or wherever you go. Herd at Heritage Power Hour to find the podcast, and please subscribe and share. That's my final word. And the Power Hour at Heritage.org. Thank you, John and Steve. Thank you for being a guest. And most importantly, thank all of you for listening. We will see you next time.